Hey, my name's Louis, and welcome to... I'm just going to go for it. Hello, I'm Louis, nutritionist and personal trainer, and it's my privilege to welcome you to Between Two Plates, the Strength Vitality podcast where we discuss everything between gym plates and kitchen plates to do with fitness, nutrition, and mental health. This week, we're joined by Dr. Adam Davies, warrior of the front line, to discuss his experience of the front line his take on the information we're being given, and also we get the chance to touch on some of Adam's eventful background. You'll hear about Adam's brush with an almost life-changing rugby injury, the treatment of anyone suffering with COVID-19, and Adam's first-hand experience of being a real-life superhero on the front line. If anyone has any questions relating to any of the topics discussed in this interview, please don't hes hesitate to email me at louis at strengthvitality.com. Thank you again, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. There's, um, what's it, actually, actually, probably my next question probably bridges us well to anyone who's just joined for you to um, give an introduction to yourself. Um, and then, uh, then I'm going to ask you, and if it leads in, great, but then I'm going to ask you to sort of, um, so your training, where it's taken you to, what your sort of work was like, and then how that has changed with yeah. COVID-19. So if you could give everyone an introduction into yourself, Adam, the training that's taken you up to where you're at now, and then how life has changed as a professional where, where do you want me to start with my uh, my introduction? Uh, oh, well, actually, let me begin. So yes. uh, Adam is one of my longest term friends. Um, started off beating me up in rugby, uh, then academically beat me up. And uh, <laughs> haven't seen him since I've had the opportunity not to, really. <laughs> um, and, and you've been one of the hardest working people uh, I've ever known, been fortunate enough to know and be, be a friend of. Uh, and... Uh, and you've been, I mean, you've been on the, you like knew you were going to be a doctor since you were like 13, right? Or was it before? Uh, I actually used to want to be a chef. And then I sort of, yes. bit of uh, around GCSEs, I decided, I think the social life of a chef probably the worst than that of a doctor. So I might just up my game a bit and try and go a bit more academic. than. <laughs> How's the social cooking. life now, Al? Ad? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's all right. It's, 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 uh, it could be worse. I, I think. I definitely prefer my social life to what a chef's social life is like now. Okay. So that was a good decision on that front. <laughs> so yeah, give us give us an idea of that that journey. Uh, so yeah, that would so that's GCSEs, you sort of it helps to decide early doors. So because you know you've got to get the grades to get into medical school. So I think I don't know what the minimum requirement is now and it's all changed, but it used to be I think minimum seven A star. I mean I've had friends and people got way, way more than that at, at okay. uni. Um and you go into the A levels, and then you've got to get the minimum again was I think three A's by A two for a lot of med schools. Which sometimes you can, you would certain circumstances you can get them less, but generally speaking, and sometimes it's more, but generally speaking, that's kind of the average. Um, and then yeah, I got to Leeds. I went to Leeds Uni um, there for six years. Uh, I had a great time there. Really, probably some of the best years of my life. Just it is full on, but it's good. They, it's a cliche, but work hard, play hard is a big part of it. You kind of, you do spend a lot of time in the library, but then you make the most of your time. Uh, you had you, a big, you had a big thing happen there though, right? Like a big lifetime <laughs> thing happened. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, that was, so I had a big, a big rugby injury. Um, the day after my final exam of third year, where I basically broke my neck playing rugby um, and was, quadriplegic and couldn't move at the time I remember it all very clearly I was wide awake for it um and it was actually very lucky when it happened though that's well obviously Louis, Louis, you know the story but for other people it was yeah. how it, in our end of season game a big end of season game um against the doctors so the students played the doctors and some of the opposition were, well, all of the opposition were doctors. One of one of them was the on-call spinal surgeon for Leeds that day. So he was there when it happened. There was another spinal surgeon, the A&E doctors, trainee surgeons, all the kit with them, neck brace, everything sorted. So the same guy that was there operated on me later that day. Um, and then, so I was in very, very good hands from the minute it happened. And with... What started as a very poor prognosis, which thankfully I was sedated with and didn't have to deal with, and it was my family that had to sort of bear the burden of that. And then I just was just lucky, and I just got better and better, and just you're strong, everything. mate. You were after, strong after like a first the first week. I just I was just really lucky, and I think 
massive part of that is the, the care I got at the scene and the injury. Just there's a lot of evidence that says the sooner you get your neck back in a good position, basically, the better the outcome. And it's the people that have those accidents, you know, in a car crash or a high impact injury and they, they're stuck in an awkward position they can't get out of and they're isolated. That's the, they're the people that get stuck like that for a long time. And then the pressure on the spinal cord is con continues for a lot longer. So they're the ones that have the worst outcomes long term. Um, so yeah, I was in ICU for 27, 28 days, something like that. Um, had a, I was on a ventilator and, but like I had such a, it was such a great team of people um, there. And then went to a spinal rehab center up in Yorkshire in Wakefield for two months. Um, which was a bit like a summer camp, really. It was quite a funny uh, experience because everyone's in a very weird part of their lives where you're in this like weird community for a few months. So, I mean, I was one of the quick ones. I was in that in two months. Most some people there for like six months. Wow. Um, just trying to make the best of what movement you've got left. And I was obviously lucky enough that when I arrived, I was in a wheelchair and I could just about, I had quite a good power in my legs by that point, but I uh, couldn't really move, use my arms that much. And, by the time I left, I just had a walking stick. So, and then carried on my rehab at home and pretty much back made a full recovery. So, how long was that from from point of trauma to full recovery? Something like eighty five days or eighty seven days, I think. Mate, like you smashed that. Well done. Yeah, it, it was it was it was good good bit of work experience for me. To be honest, I got to see a lot of the inside of the, the you know the the bed the patient side of things. Um, so yeah, very. I, it was. I'd say like it is life changing, but in a way, my whole life was kind of thrown up in the air, then put back down exactly where it was before. Did like, you have a different, the change your perspective on life. It, it did a bit, maybe a bit more reckless. If anything, probably a bit more. Life's too short. You never know what's around the corner. Oh, of. okay. Because everyone, when I was in the rehab unit, everyone there was like it was just bad luck with the reasons we were all in there no, no one had planned to be in there no one was doing anything particularly stupid it was just bad luck so kind of made you realize you know take the opportunities while you've got them because you don't know what so like i think about probably about eight months later i went skiing for the first time because <laughs> <laughs> the opportunity came my way and i was like you know what i could, I could probably do it so let's just do it and then <laughs> like it is, it is you never know what's around the corner so that's that was what that kind of taught me about that was how that experience changed me so i've been lucky enough to so i didn't even miss because it was the day after my last exam i was in hospital all summer and then went back to uni in september because like i could basically i was well enough to there was no point to to miss it so yeah very very interesting experience good networking you had your last exam the day before the accident mm. Mm. Literally, yeah, it was uh, quite a, a, a funny old summer, but I've, I've done very well for it. I've made a lot of friends, made a lot of good contacts in the medical world. Still text my surgeon every now and again just to check no in. Because he said, you know, like, he, he obviously he does those operations, not necessarily daily, but weekly, if not more often. And he said to me, like, if, if I could, if, if one in a hundred of my operations ended up like yours obviously I'd, I'd do every single one because it makes such it goes from what could be seen as such a bleak outcome you know quadriplegic potentially on a ventilator for the rest of your lives to someone making a full recovery and giving it a good go so that's uh, he's like it's it's nice for him and yeah it was very it was just such a strain it was such a strange experience obviously from it was a huge huge thing to go through but because it was all like it happened in front of so many doctors. I had so many doctors following up on checking up on me and see how I was doing. I just have like random phone calls from like, oh, this there's a surgeon on the phone who's asking after you. Are you right for me to share? And I was like, yeah, go for it. Like, I don't know who it is, but <laughs> they've probably got good reason. So yeah, it was that that was a big big step. And then the following year from that, I was doing kind of we do this intercalated degree where you take. It's more of an academic year. You're not on placement as much, and um, or at all really. And you just do like research and things. And so that was a bit more easier to do when I was a bit more. That's fatiguing easier. So I didn't have to be traipsing around a hospital as a student. I was in the library working from home, 
that kind of thing. And Tavelli's Uni were really good with helping me out with like, equipment and stuff so I could work from home. So yeah, good, all credit to them because it was, they made it a lot easier for me. And they were good to my family as well, actually, and putting them up to come and visit, obviously, all the way up from Sussex. Um, it was nice for them to have like a regular place to stay when they came up and right. stuff like that. So yeah, really, it was um, a bit a bit of a blip and an, an unexpected experience in my med school career. But it was, yeah, I've learned a lot from it and try and take that into practice now in terms of little things you can do for patients that to pe- people who are too tired to move or can't move, just like actually persisting, persistently saying like, well, what can I do to make you more comfortable now? Like Wicked. this is because it's easy to go. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry. Like, yeah, there you go. Someone says, are you comfortable? Is that all right? You just go, yeah, yeah. And then it can really bug you for ages if you can't do anything about it yourself. So just being like, look, I know it's annoying. Just tell me what you want to do to make you more comfortable because it takes me 30 seconds to adjust your pillows and that might mean you're more comfortable until someone else does it. Yeah, man. It's just little things like that that is very easy in a busy hospital setting to kind of just whiz through and forget. So, um, yeah, yeah, I learned a lot from it. Probably, I mean, it didn't change me too much, I like to think, but it was, um, yeah, a lot to take away, a lot of benefits, a lot of positives come out of it as well. So then you, so then you, you, you finished this big stage of your life, and then you're into yeah. the hospital setting. So you, you've said you've begun in that hospital setting. Um, so sort of from then till now, mm. pre-COVID, what was, what does your work? And I know you've been in loads of different areas. Um, yeah. What does your sort of work? What does work life for you look like in a hospital? Yeah. So I only actually COVID? graduated like what in in last summer. So I've only been working for. A, half a year like going nearly eight months I guess or nine months or so but so I started off working in in psychiatry which because you, when you apply for jobs they're kind of bundled together and you just rank the bundles in a sense for which one you want the most and it's whoever's got the highest score from med school gets their first pick and it works yeah. down that and you kind of get so I was quite happy with the one I got because I wasn't I wasn't the best points wise going into it but the jobs I chose weren't as popular so I, I did quite well in terms of what I wanted um psych I think was just a good dealing with so I was working in liaison psychiatry which is based in the hospital I'm in now and we kind of get called by ward doctors or A&E doctors to say we think this person's having like mental health issues or they're known to have mental health issues and like can you if it's causing a problem or then we go and review them and see what medications we can change or update the community mental health team things like that and I, I kind of wanted to do that job because I just think it's really useful to have it's a good set of skills to be aware of to being open to people with mental health and how it can affect them physically and how like important it is for, for all doctors to bear that in mind and having that experience for me early on was really useful to sort of take forward as well because um, it's not a big part of there's so much more in medicine and the rest of being a doctor, but that's such an underrated part of it, I think. You know, it's not even really been taken seriously for until in the last sort of hundred years or so, I guess. It's not yeah. sort of it wasn't as it seemed it seemingly as important as it is. And thankfully now it's growing and people are more aware of it. And, and do you think people quite, are getting better treatment because of that? I think so, yeah. I think I think that it's still you get some older old school doctors who are less open to the idea and maybe don't think about it quite as much, but it's, it's definitely, I think the, the younger generation of doctors at the moment are, more, are far more aware of it and will okay. should put them in good stead to consider it going forward. And, and is like, that what you're doing now? So is that, is that the work you're doing now in the hospital? No. So that's what I started on. I did four months of that. And then I went on to a respiratory ward. So that's people with lung problems, basically a lot of pneumonias, a lot of infections, uh, and people who need extra lung support, but not quite intensive care. You know, they're not on a ventilator as such. A lot of them are using things like CPAP and BiPAP. I don't know if you've heard of them, like breathing yeah. machines. Um, that help with various lung problems. So they tend to, if they've got problems, they, they come into the respiratory ward and that's where we deal with them. So it's, it's an area in medicine I really enjoyed. I found it very interesting okay. um, and had a really good team up there. So it's, I mean, it's, it's been 
it's busy like normally even pre, like pre-covid it was probably busier because there was a lot less doctors around and we would kind of look after our ward and we would look after the outliers so because there's such a pressure for beds they put medical patients on surgical wards so different teams cover which obviously the surgeons they're that's the surgical experts the not medical experts so um we need to so we'd go and see them and that's a bit of a faff because right. if they're on the side of the hospital it takes a big chunk of your day out to keep to in and fro in um to the other like to, to other wards to, to see patients so now we've just got since covid we've now just got our own ward their own one team which hospital are you in sorry adam at the moment i'm in william harvey in east kent so in ashford um so that, that's it's like a dgh it's very similar to i think it's actually when it was originally built it's exactly the same layout as eastbourne um yeah. but then they've both sort of been extended in various ways since they were built um so what you were saying about now how it's changed with covid yeah so they've kind of yeah because they brought all these extra doctors in and they've we, we only we don't have to have outliers anymore because there's enough doctors to just cover each ward we kind of that's the workloads actually from that perspective been a lot better uh, in my hospital they've kept the respiratory ward as like one of the last non-covid wards or like not query covid wards as, as in people who might have it might not we're still waiting for test results okay we're one of basically when people get a negative test they come to ours because it's, it's basically a general medical ward but non-covid now um which is well it's, it's got its risks and benefits obviously it means we've, we probably have slightly less ppe because we in theory we shouldn't need it because all the patients have had a negative test so you can um, only be on your ward if you have been tested n- negative yeah yeah that's how it stands at the moment um that being said it's still it's not foolproof you know the tests aren't 100 percent. okay um, a lot, and, and the patients that come in um some of them don't have any symptoms and they still get net thankfully now the, the hospital is testing everyone who comes in uh, which for a little while they weren't because there weren't enough there wasn't enough testing capacity um so now everyone gets tested so we've got a better idea but you know we'd have we had you some say everyone gets tested do you mean like anyone walking into that building is tested for covid uh, no more like any patient who's being admitted to the hospital okay so regardless of symptoms if they're going to be staying in the hospital they'll get a swab just in case okay because we've had cases of people who didn't have any symptoms related to covid whatsoever sitting on a ward for ages who then when it came to going home or going back to like a care home and the care home saying we, we need a swab before they come back and then they get t- test positive and we don't know how they've got it. it could be from staff could be from the patients you just okay. you can't really keep track of it so it's a difficult one but um yeah that thankfully now they're testing everyone who is going to be staying in the hospital as a patient um so they get at least and even they're not 100 but it gives you something to go off of at least what's your uh, what's your rotor like at the moment um see mine's actually getting my trust because because i'm on the non-covid wards it's been all right mine's been pretty much the same so i've been but i know a lot of doctors in london and a lot of doctors on the other covid wards are basically doing sort of three 12 hour days three days on three days off right indefinitely now until they come with a better plan and they trying to keep um staff separate so you're not getting too much crossover or is that just not yes yeah kind of it's not really possible is the reality of it you know there's only so many computers and because there's only so much space you can't put them all six feet apart and like we can still that's what we do so much of the work from the computers the liaising between different specialities requesting tests things like that and the phones obviously as well ringing different parts of the hospital to get things done um so you, you just you can't spread them out if you really wanted to if you wanted if you did it by the book you just wouldn't be anywhere to put you can't do it basically so um we do i think part of the idea of keeping like not having outlying wards so we're not going from one to the other all the time so you kind of you go to your ward, you stay in that office, you stay on that ward, then you go home and it's maybe helping a bit. It's probably tip of the iceberg really, but it's it's something it's just doing all as many little things as you can to reduce the risk in such a high risk place when there's so many people who could be who could have it in close quarters with other people. Okay. So yeah, it's it's it has changed quite a lot in that respect. 
even on a non-COVID world. But you you touched on the testing. Um, now, lots of people are asking about this idea of like, you've got this antibody testing, you've got the testing that they're doing to see if you have it. And, and, mm. I, and I think the antibodies one, if you've had it, can mm. you give us a bit of an idea of, well, actually, these are the tests that people are talking about and why more of the other is not being done? Yeah, I, I don't, I, to be fair, I don't know a lot about where, how the capacity of testing of each type. All I know is, so the... And the viral sort of the current swabbing is to check if you have it. So that's essentially looking for any traces of the RNA from the virus. So when a virus is taking hold in a cell in a body, like a, a human host, it like replicates and produces more RNA, which is like the genetic material, um, which can be then picked up with a swab and they put it in a machine where they basically upscale that. DNA, not DNA, that genetic material to the point where it's measurable, where like there's enough of it, they can just replicate it. Um, and then you can go, right, well, so we, the source of this. So they have, on, on, it's hard to explain, but because it's like a single strand of DNA, essentially, and they have the template to the other half of it um, for the virus. So they take the swab, mix it with the template, and if it starts sticking, then you know that it's matching, so the other half yeah. is present in the human. So that suggests that the virus is there at the time. And, so, which test, and, and you currently talking about the, the, the general the test that they have at the moment? Yeah, that's what they're doing at the moment. Yes. No, that's, that's more like an antigen test in a way. Like okay. That's pr proving that the virus is present when this test was taken. That's, that's all it proves. So the antibody testing, on the other hand, is when your body amounts an immune response to that virus, it will create like a specific set of antibodies in the blood. So it's like a protein that matches, again, kind of in a similar way, matches the, it'll be specific to COVID. So it'll be an antibody that your body's developed to fight COVID. And so that should be similar in everyone who's had it. Um, and then once you can find out, you know, if you've got the presence of this antibody, it suggests that at some time, because they, they stay around for a long time afterwards, that's how you get immunity, is your body mounts this response, creates the antibodies, and then they float around in your blood in case okay. the virus comes back and you can fight it off more quickly the next time because you've already got the antibodies. So if you start testing people for the antibodies, um then and you find it then you can say there's a good chance you've been exposed to the virus in the past okay and you've got immunity now so that if you get exposed to the virus again you already have the antibodies to stimulate the immune system to fight it off efficiently. is our is our understanding at the moment that there is uh, with this virus that there is once you've had it an immunity or are we still is the evidence still unclear on that I, th I think it's, I think it's, I'm not sure. I'm fairly confident it's, yeah, the evidence is saying it, you, you get immune to it. Okay. If, if you don't, we do have, it's going to be a big problem. Like, I don't know what they do after that. If you, because a, a vaccine is kind of like the same process. So, yeah. It would only make sense. It, it's, but you, artificial rather than your body doing it. Um, so, I think there's a fair old chance if you've had it you won't get it again or at least nowhere near as bad. Um, but so it's, it's different with viruses because you think like the flu virus, you get vaccinated every year because that mutates seasonally. So each season it's slightly different to the last season. So they kind of get a load of the latest type of flu, create a vaccine to it and then give everyone that vaccine and hope it will just soften the immune response a bit to the flu so you won't get quite as ill. And, and a vaccine... For anyone who doesn't understand, uh, mm. is, is it, so is a vaccine a like dormant or dead sort? Of, yeah, you think there's two types. Virus? You can get, well, there might be more, but you can get some. Sometimes it's like a live but weakened vaccine, and sometimes it's like a dead fragment of the of a, whatever you're trying to vaccinate against. So by putting that, introducing that into the blood, um, it doesn't cause the same massive response to cause you to get ill but it's just enough to help your body make antibodies to that 
like the human your response so that if it ever gets exposed to the full thing it's kind of got something already it's got some of these antibodies floating around already okay to help fight it off and when it does get exposed to it now the um the things that we've been here by the way adam thank you so much for the science lesson i didn't <laughs> it's really hard to know it's like that actually making sense because you are making loads of in sense in my head it makes sense but then i don't even know what words i'm saying <laughs> Uh, sorry, mate. I know you, 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 you're doing a very serious job and we're asking questions that are not probably that simple, but you're doing a great job of it. Thank you. Um, with the, so some of the things that we're hearing in the media uh, and those of us who are fortunate enough to not go into a hospital, not have to go into a hospital, mm. are getting most of our information from the media. Uh, yeah. So I want to ask you a couple of things uh, and to see if they are in your experience and, and the people that you're around as as maybe prevalent or realistic as is the case. So the first thing is the PPE. Is that, um, for those of us who don't work in hospitals, now this has been mm -hmm. thrown up to be something that is really serious and really important. Yeah. Um, is it as important as the media saying, and is, uh, is it as challenging for you guys to be getting what you need as well? Yeah, it's, it's, a, very, <laughs> it's a very touchy subject, in, especially like, yeah, in hospitals, in the media. But essentially, the, the PPE is the bit that's like, the government justifying why how, why healthcare workers should keep doing the job they're doing because you're putting yourself we're in theory putting ourselves everyone else getting told to stay home yeah. stay, we're getting told to go to work because yes it is our job to make people better but there's a significant increase in risk of carrying that job out at the moment right. um so uh if there's enough pp and everyone can wear all the time in theory you won't or at least it massively reduces the risk of healthcare workers catching it from patients or each other. Um, that's the that's the rationale. Okay. Uh, that being said, there's varying levels of PPE, so you might just have. It depends on the risk. It's all like risk stratified at the moment. So the highest risk areas get the most extensive PPE. So they'll have the visors, the big masks, the gowns, the aprons, two pairs of gloves. Like they'll be fully covered, and they'll be sort of rotating that round as they go between patients. But obviously that's a massively high turnover of this equipment across every hospital. Would it be, sorry, Adam, would it be like, you've got these juggernauts kitted up and yeah. they see Mr. Smith and then does that all get changed over again to see the next uh, Not all of it. In an, I mean, in an ideal world from a purely infectious point of view, yes, it would be, but there's kind of things you can do. So by having a gown, you kind of treat that as your second skin. And then you have an apron over the gown, which should catch most of what comes at okay. you. And then you change the apron, like a thin plastic apron. You change that and you're out a layer of gloves, um, wipe the visor, things like that. And then you go to the next patient. That's okay. like the high end PPE situation in confirmed cases, people who are on various breathing machines that can disperse the virus into the air around them. That's like the proper full PPE, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then in other parts of the hospital, it's kind of um, a surgical mask, so just like a thin mask that you tie on the back of your head, some okay. glasses, apron, gloves. That, that is, the supplies vary so much, you know. And it's no one's fault that there's like a low supply, in the, but it's a global thing. Like they don't, The people that made these before this weren't prepared for this to happen. Right. And there's a global demand for it, so there's, there's going to be a shortage, but... It's kind of just yeah, risk stratifying it to say, right, there's a less of a chance of you getting it where you are, so you don't need to wear quite much kind of way of saving it, I guess. Uh, and okay. trying to find ways to limit the yeah, how quickly you throw it away or any ways you can find to be clean without PPE in terms of, you know, keeping patients separately side rooms or as far away from each other as possible. There's lots of ways you can try and reduce risk um and pp is one of the big ones for healthcare staff and in your uh, experience have the government sort of caught up on this so you like yeah initially everyone was a bit like what and now it's sort of okay now it's much easier to get hold of what yeah i mean i can't, i don't really know because i've been on the non-covid ward so i i can't say i've heard massively complimentary things about it from other wards um but um because uh, even on the non-COVID world, we wear basic PPE. So I still, when I'm with patients, I'll still wear a mask and open gloves just in case. It's, I'm in a bit of a, another lucky 
funny situation because I have had COVID. I had it six weeks ago, got tested, had it, had two weeks off work, then went back. Not that ill with it. I was okay. I had a cough for a few days, a headache, a runny nose, lost my sense of smell and taste for a well, I've still my smell's kind of not fully back, but Wow, okay. Even now, yeah, but was there stages for that for you, Adam? Were you like, oh, that's weird, I can't smell. Now it's my cough. Yeah, no, for me, it was it was bizarre because I literally had, I'd been in London at the weekend and then on the Sunday, I like had the most mild cough. Like I was coughed, I coughed maybe, well, just enough to notice that I was coughing more, that I was regularly coughing over a day. Um, and I was like, is this, I felt like I was cheating work off. I was like texting my team, like, I don't know, what do I do? Like, do I come in or not? Um, Cause it was, I felt absolutely fine. Um, I spoke to my consultant and she was like, just don't, it's not worth the risk. Just cause if you come in and give it to everyone in the team, then, you know, although we don't know it, you've got it yet. And if in a couple of days you go back to normal and it was a false alarm, then we'll reassess. But then I did kind of get worse. Um, not a lot worse, but I, like my nose started to feel like quite sensitive and almost like it was burning when I was breathing. Okay. Um, the cough, I had headaches, like muscle aches, things like that. It was all relatively mild, but it was enough to know something was going on that wasn't normal and made me think actually I probably should stay off. Oh, and these- then I got tested at the end of the week and it confirmed it. So it was nice to have that confirmation to be fair. Right, I, I, I bet. Yeah. Uh, a couple of questions on that. The first thing are those are these symptoms um, uh, s- synonymous with other COVID type viruses, or are they all specific to COVID? Um, I think other COVID type. I, I think the problem with it is, is we're not really being exposed to. We, we haven't been able to catch this kind of COVID because it's been confined to animal populations and it hasn't been able to jump between animals and humans. So it's kind of a, I guess they are synonymous with other COVID viruses like the MERS and SARS or whatever it was right. years ago, but they're kind of different altogether. So although they're the same strain of virus, the, the clinical picture and the effect it has on humans is very different. So. Um, in that respect, it's kind of similar, but less severe, I guess. And it's the problem with COVID is how like insidious it is in terms of how long you can have it before you get any symptoms and how far you can spread it essentially before you realize you were even, you even had it. So I had to, on that Sunday when I realized I had symptoms, I had to text everyone I've been with in London at the weekend and been like, I've just got symptoms. So as I may, there's a good chance that I've been spreading it around the, the whole weekend. So you, you'll have to, the advice is then that they self-isolate because they've been right, okay. with a known COVID patient, essentially. So they then had to isolate for two weeks in case they, that was the start. So it would take two weeks for them to get any symptoms. So did any of those people after you'd seen them, did they in those two weeks? Uh, yeah, I think now. one of them lost their sense of smell. I think it's, it's, not, but not nothing major. Okay. This is the whole thing with it. It's so hard. It's so variable between people, like the body's response to it. And that's a huge part. They still don't know why that happens, why there's such a massive difference in some people can have it without any symptoms. Some people require a ventilator, Like there's no obvious answer yet. And there probably won't be for a while as to why that happens so that we can prevent those. T- I mean, there's, Obviously, people with lung conditions and heart conditions in the first place are in a slightly disadvantaged position because their body will struggle to respond quite as well as everyone else's anyway. Um, so that, that's one thing, but that goes with any illness, basically. Um, so, yeah, it's, they don't really know why it's there's such a huge variation, and they probably won't for a little while, to be honest. It must be really tough for you and other medical professionals to be in a position where you're sort of having to make that call, like do I come in? Do I not? Because you spent decades training for this and years. Two that is what I felt. I felt, felt like I've been bent like, the game. I was like, it was all kicking off at work and I had to stay at home for two weeks. And I was like, I want to be there. I want to get, get stuck in. But then, um, 
I mean, I did start to appreciate the break, but by the, once I had the positive test, I was like, actually, you know, I don't feel guilty. That's fine. I've yeah. got it. I need to stay at home. Whereas if I'd not had the test, I'd be going, oh, did I actually have it? Maybe it wasn't it. What if I get it again later and have some more time off work? Like, it's kind of difficult to judge, but it's just a difficult situation all around. There's no, not really any winners in it. So everyone's just got to make the best of it. You were just saying, Adam, how it affects it, how it affects people in different ways, how it sort of presents itself in different ways. Could you sort of give us some sort of insight into why the data is showing that people of like uh, certain people with maybe comorbidities, and then you've also got uh, people from uh, ethnic minorities potentially getting this worse than others? Is is that just sort of a fluke well, in the data, or could this be a thing? I, I really I don't know uh, at all. Anything I'm saying from here is like speculation. I don't I don't honestly don't know. I've heard theories that it's not so much actually that ethnic minorities get it worse, but a lot more ethnic minorities work in like key worker roles and and lower socioeconomic like jobs, and so they don't have the luxury of working from home they can't right, okay do that. Yeah, they can't just sit at home from a laptop and do their jobs uh, so that's one argument i've heard i don't know the figures i don't know if it's, if it's backed yeah. up um, yeah. there are other health problems that you are that, that you're at risk of from for example like asian communities are south asian particularly are more at risk of cardiovascular disease that's just like a risk factor that you have to take into account when you're considering whether someone might have that or not it's just a if they are of South Asian origin, then there's a slight higher chance it could be like heart disease. So things like that do exist in medicine where for, for whatever reason, people's genetics makes them more susceptible to things and might be also related to the color of their skin or, but I, I really, on this, I'm really not entirely sure what. No, I appreciate that. Or if anything's been proven, um, or if it's it's not it's definitely possible, but it's a case of you know trying to stick to good evidence based practice. Okay, absolutely, that kind of thing. that's I what think... we preach. So we need to stick to it. Anyone listening to that will really appreciate it. It's like that's the sign of a like true expert and and person who respects. Well, on practice. that basis, like... generally, I'm <laughs> true. <laughs> don't know, so it's. No, <laughs> but it's, but it's true. It means that, it, like, that's that is. It's like this is what we know, and the, the, we know that we don't know. Yeah, and, yeah, that, that is what we all. We, yeah, it's not true. Nothing's proven. There's loads of theories getting banded about. There's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of this specialist consultant who's really good said this. So, yeah, and it's like, well, I've just seen that on a WhatsApp group. So, I, what am I supposed to do with that? Do I now start doing <laughs> because someone said it? Because this consultant in Australia said it like, yeah, you've got to stick to what the trust guidelines say, what the, the, you know, the WHO of like formal guidance, you just, because there is a legal element to it as well. Like, you know, if something goes wrong and you've acted on a whim or gone off of what someone said on WhatsApp, then you, well, it's not smart in the, in the best of times, but you could get yourself in a lot of trouble and cause a lot of harm by it. So, yeah, you could cause a hell of a lot of harm, like for sure. So you, the, as much as there's loads of speculation and loads of ideas, and obviously everyone's coming up with theories every day, so you just got to take it all with a bit of a pinch of salt and stick to what we know, which is not a great deal at the moment. So, do we know anything about viral loading? This word that is like the the idea yeah, yeah. Of being more. <laughs> to me, uh, when I read about that, it did make kind of a lot of sense. But again, Can you explain for anyone listening what that concept is first. So, yeah, basically, in, in this concept that people can asymptomatically carry it and spread it. So, using the example of um, there was a, the, the discussion was around. There's a lot of ENT doctors, so ear, nose, and throat doctors, okay. who are nearly all of their patients, like there's been a few that have ended up in intensive care sooner than there's been of any other speciality. Um, and the theory is that they've been closer to a lot, like to the mouth and nose of people coming in as part of their job. So say of 10 patients they see in a morning or day or whatever, five of those were asymptomatically carrying it. Okay they've had five people exposing them to the virus. And so they've got more of the virus before they get any symptoms. 
So then the body's so response. It's just more chance of the virus. There's more of it. There's more physically of the virus in them because five different people, like each of those people that have come in, have come in and seen one person and gone out, whereas he's seen all of those people come in. Yeah, right. So five out of 10 of them were coughing or like somehow transmitting the virus to him. Then he might have more before he knows he's got it and stays away. And that happens again the next day and the next day for a week. Then by the time he gets symptoms, he's got so much of the virus in his body, him or her, sorry. Um, yeah. They they have so much of the virus that then their immune response just goes mad and sends them into okay. acute respiratory distress. They need to go to intensive care on a ventilator. I think that's the theory. Um, I hope that makes sense. I think it's, and then, you know, other people like myself might have seen one, you know, gone near one person with it or touched a handrail that someone had touched with it and so i had a little bit of the virus and so i had a little immune response um and, that, and that's why my symptoms weren't as bad um so that's that's the theory but i don't know if it, i don't think it's there's no i don't think they're quantifying the amount of virus in right okay or the, like in testing at the moment I, i'm not sure that's how they would do it not that it's impossible but it's just not my area at all um to, to say you know okay this person's really bad and look they've got a really high viral load when they came in but it's, it's not something they know how to do yet or could roll wow. out on a large scale to find out enough to prove it so it's it's a big it's a big mess but uh it, it, that's that's the theory anyway it's it's um it seems it's, it's like many sort of theories and then it's then like many conspiracy theories, it, because it does have a logic behind it, it's very easy to buy um, yeah. and sort of and believe. Now, and we talk about um, like, the, we've all seen this letter R and the idea that it has to be below like a certain number of people that we're infecting. Can you explain to us what that is and what we're talking I about? I mean, to be fair, I don't really know a lot about this. This is like big epidemiology, like looking at the bigger picture. Whereas I've kind of got fed up of it and just gone, right, let's just let the, the people that deal with that deal with that and I will deal with the stuff around <laughs> yeah. to an extent. Um, my guess is it's kind of to do with once so many people have had it, the probability that when you come into contact with someone in the, you know, when lockdown's lifted, that they will then have had it as well. And so say there's a group of three people, one person's got it, two people have had it, the virus doesn't get transmitted because even if it goes to those other two people, they can fight off without an issue. Okay. So in theory, the virus doesn't spread in a group of three in that setting. So that happens on a big scale and eventually the virus can't spread to anyone. So that's, these, that's why we say about these at-risk groups staying um, isolated for longer because the idea is we don't want them to get it ever let alone have to mount an immune response to right. it. So over a long enough period of time, everyone who's had it or everyone who has it will only come into contact with people who have had it. Then the virus won't go any further than that person. It ends there in within, you know, down that branch essentially. Okay. And in a bigger group, then you get loads of people who are immune to it. There's no active virus being spread anymore. And then it's kind of safe for the at-risk groups to come out and, never have to get it or at least until there's a vaccine somewhere down the line which they can have without a full-blown immune response the tricky with understanding immune response is i keep saying it i don't know if it's made any sense in terms of you want a good immune response but not a, an over active immune response kind of thing if, if you if you can't have an immune response you're more at risk but if you have too big an immune response that's what causes symptoms and the other problem. So I think for, from the understanding is a big immune response. If you get the virus in the lungs, then it, it kind of causes the cells to die and you get a buildup of these dead cells in the lung tissue. So they can't get the air in to the blood okay. because they, those spaces where that happens are filled with dead cells. And that's what's called acute respiratory dis distress syndrome, which is oh, okay. why people are being ventilated, what they're being ventilated for at the moment. Um, but that's kind of the knock-on effect of a, of a big immune response. So when I'm saying you want an immune response, you kind of want an appropriate immune response. You can have it go too far or you can have it not enough, but 
so that, that, it's, it's a weird one and that's where it varies so much between what people are getting is because you can have a really good immune response and then it causes more problems because it kills too many cells rather than the right amount so it's, it's a variable thing no uh, and it's not something i'd know fully inside out but it's i think that's the the rational roughly i don't know if that makes sense but that does make sense that does make sense you yeah. so and what you really nicely led into is what i think i said to you earlier that i wanted to ask you about was that journey of so when we think about sort of the people that are being really hit by this the hardest what might uh, might the journey of someone's care look like so from someone sort of living their day-to-day life to ending up in like icu and really sort of fighting for their life what does yeah. that journey look so like? it's kind of it's going to be hugely variable but i guess it's the people who get some symptoms and i guess i mean boris Johnson's probably kind of a good example in that he said you know i've got some symptoms i'm isolating the recommended time is like seven days and it got to that end of that seven days and he was still kind of getting worse and he was still short of breath, getting more short of breath. That's the point where you then might go to hospital. Um, and then we check your oxygen levels. We go, right, they're quite low. So we need to give you some oxygen. And then it's just a case of balancing, right. Are they, um, like, are we giving too much or not enough? Do we need to get a bigger machine in to give more oxygen to keep their levels up? Do we need to ventilate them? So that's like the end stage is getting someone to sedate them so that you can put a tube down their throat and essentially breathe for them because they might not be able to do it well enough themselves. Um, and that's how it could progress if it goes really wrong. The massive, massive problem we're having at the moment is deciding you have to decide very early how far you're going to go because not everyone can tolerate having a ventilator. If you're going to be, if you're going to be sedated. What, Adam, what's the, what's the ventilator doing? I think it sounds simple on the surface, but it... Yeah, so that's when you're having loads and loads of oxygen extra and your blood levels of oxygen still aren't coming up to good levels. So you can't just have air coming from the oxygen, coming from the outside. You need to force it in. Right. Uh, so that's where what those machines I was talking about, the CPAP and the BiPAP machines earlier, they, their ways of doing that where you strap a big face mask on and it blows the air in. But if that doesn't work, then you have to sedate someone, put a tube down their throat and like fix it so that it's just blowing air from the machine directly into the lungs right, to kind okay. of take over the job of their lungs. If, if you put this mask more. on someone's face, sorry, I just really want to understand this. If you've got this mask on someone's face, yeah. they're not sedated. Are they still in control of their breath or is it imposed upon them? So the, the, the machine, as in not being ventilated, this is if you're still awake and you've got the mask strapped on, yeah. you, you initiate the breath and okay. the machine can detect when you start taking that breath in and then it blows more in. The difference in the machines is the pressures and okay. CPAPs is, has one pressure, whereas BiPAP has two pressures. So to facilitate breathing, depending on what the problem is. Um, so yeah, it, this is the, everyone's so different, and some people get people can be on a ventilator for a very long time. Some patients have been on, in, that I'm aware of have been you know 16, 17 days on a ventilator, even though the virus has kind of subsided. It's a real strain on the body and takes a long time to get over. And a lot of people aren't fit enough in the first place to even have that. So a lot of the times, what's really difficult for doctors and for families and patients is that decision has to be made quite early whether you're even going to bother because it's not even not a bother that's the wrong word but whether it's not safe to try because your outcome is likely to be worse you're like if you there's some people that you just know if we put them on a ventilator sedate them we won't be able to get them off they'll just be on the ventilator and then it will just be a decision further down the line where we just have to turn it off and there's not enough ventilators in the world at the moment to be using them for that Right. Um, and you kind of just we don't have enough to just keep everyone on it indefinitely and that's where the intensive care consultants are having loads of really really difficult decisions at the moment to say i just don't think we would stand a chance with this person the ventilator so they're not for a ventilator they can have one of these mask straps on if they tolerate it if that doesn't work we just have to wait and hope and see what happens so that's what what's i think really emotionally and mentally quite difficult for a lot of these doctors at the moment especially in intensive care and on the covid wards is decisions are being made quite early and having to communicate that and obviously 
the relatives can't visit. So you have to do this all over the phone to explain this, that they're not for a ventilator, they won't tolerate it. They're not for resuscitation because they won't survive that either. So there's no point trying because it would be just, just prolonging the inevitable and giving people an undignified death. So it's really like big, difficult decisions that are having to get made all the time because, and quite efficiently, because everyone's like terrified and trying to just, I don't know, everyone's got everyone's best interests at heart, but it doesn't always come across like that because I don't know if you've seen, I, th I think TV glamorizes CPR a bit, like resuscitation, that just jump, like pressing on someone's chest a bit and they come back to life mir miraculously. And it's just not like that. It's, it's so much more brutal and so much more damaging physically. So it's a point, it's a fair thing to go, actually, do you really want that? If, if your heart stops, if we get to the point where you're literally dead, do you really want us to start jumping up and down on your chest to try and bring you back to life when it probably won't work? And it's, it's a difficult decision to say. And, it's, and it takes a lot to, for, for some people. Some people are like, oh, God, no, yeah, I don't want that. Like, are these, what, sorry, are these decisions made... So when you're talking about this decision, and is, are the families involved in these decisions? Well, the, yeah. Are the, are the patients the, involved in the, these decisions? The, the, the patients and family are always supposed to be involved in these decisions. They were always... They, I can't say always, but there definitely should be an attempt to involve the patient and involve the family. Sometimes you get these really difficult situations where, and, but, but ultimately it has to be a medical decision because it's the medics who are going to be doing it. Yeah. And that's, that's absolute bottom line. There will always be, the patient should be involved, but sometimes they're too confused or delirious to be involved and you can't actually physically speak to them to find out. Sometimes you can't get in contact with any relatives. Sometimes they don't have any, and it's kind of a really difficult decision to make. Um, sometimes it's fine. Sometimes if you've got like a really old person who's, you know, 105 and, or even not even that old, but frail, and you just know that they wouldn't survive it anyway, they're kind of on board with it and the family's on board with it. That makes it an easy decision. Okay. It's not, it's not easy for anyone, but it's an easier decision if it's right. like that but it's difficult when because you get some that they're like they're not that old they're not that unwell but would they tolerate all of this so it's big like big decisions to be made and even top icu consultants they have to make them all the time struggle a lot and that's these are just decisions that happen to be made a lot more frequently than usual than usual because of covid because that's how ill people can get with it and that's how, I guess, I don't think they're worried, at least not in my hospital, I don't think they're worried about not having enough ventilators if, if people needed them. But it's just no point in some people because they just wouldn't ever get off it if they weren't strong enough. Because you get when, when you're on that ventilator, you get weaker in other ways. Your muscles waste. Okay. You get things like that. Your bones get less dense and you're, you weaken a lot. So you have to be pretty fit and strong in the first place to go through with it. And some people just aren't well enough to even try. So those are the big, yeah, big difficult decisions, I think, affecting like COVID situation in hospitals at the moment. Um, then on, a, on, 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 okay. So then when we, on sort of like a more hopeful note, are you, do you get people that go in and they might, you're talking like they're, they're still ending up in intensive care. And yeah. then what is happening when we have these amazing stories where people are then able to recover? Are you like, it can get to it's point just, like days before you're making a decision and then it's. Well, it's, it's not so much that I think if you've committed to putting someone on a ventilator in the first place, you're kind of committing to seeing that through and leaving it as right. long as it takes. That's part of the decision. Obviously it's not always as simple as that. And sometimes your decision weren't, maybe you find out more information as you go or something changes in the situation that means that person gets sicker than you thought they were going to or that kind of thing. But people do go on ventilators and get off them. That's, that's the, it's kind of a, I, it was quite a scary statistic to what people talking about how all these young 50 year old people on ventilators at the moment, but they're on them because they're the ones with the best chances. Right. So okay. That's that they wouldn't be there if they didn't have the best chance of actually coming off them at some point. So, um, it's something to bear in mind with, with those kind of stats, but it does also mean there's a lot of older people who aren't even getting a chance because it's just, there's such a big strain on your body. 
um, if the COVID response gets somewhere, if you yeah. get sick with it, whereas people, you know, just get the milder symptoms and you think you can probably just stay at home with it and if it gets worse, come back. So there's you, a real spectrum. Have you been able to see any of these, like, first-hand, uh, like, amazing stories of recovery kind of we're not we had actually one of the nurses from my ward was on intensive care with like on a ventilator which i think it was very difficult you know it's difficult for the other nurses to get wow. on with their jobs properly because they know that just around the corner in the intensive care unit is one of their friends so who's been working on the ward for years um but yeah she made a well she she we did a big like clapping down the corridor for her where she came around with, from the step down yeah she was quite a bit shy lady she absolutely hated it i think yeah like a full corridor of people clapping and she was like she didn't want to be there we were a bit like why are we here because everyone was we went to walk down that corridor then just kind of joined in with everyone else it's like what are we doing like, oh, someone's coming around in a minute fine clap along uh, yeah, it does happen. Like people, you know, that's why they're on the ventilators is because they think there's a good chance I'll get off them. So, um, yeah, it does. It is. It's not all doom and gloom for sure, but it's. Um, yeah, it's, it, there's, there's a lot of gloom as well. So, <laughs> it's still serious. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's still very serious. Yeah. Do you guys are. get support? Do you guys get support like psychologically with the challenge? They're, they're doing. Uh, I, I don't know. We do. Like they are trying to check in. There's a lot of people checking in on us, and one of our one of the consultants has like done like a weekly, like on a Tuesday four o'clock or something like that. We anyone who's got any issues come. There's like a free space to talk about it, and there's supposedly rooms where we can like go and take a break if we need to, just like on our own. Like mentally have a break um but I, I mean i've been i feel like i've again because i've been on i've not been on the COVID ward so i've not had to deal with it all firsthand um and like it's kind of brought my team i feel closer together the doctors i work with on because we feel like we're in it together you know we're actually having time because we've got a little bit there's more of us to get the work done we've had a bit of time to actually get to know each other as well you know talk about things from outside of work for a bit in the day which before we didn't really get time to do so i feel like i bonded with my team quite a lot during this which is nice um you know this is what's been really what's been really cool is the sort of diversity of people in my team i've got doctors from egypt and nigeria and uh, and we had that one afternoon where we had like a bit of a lull and we just ended up looking on Google Maps and just going around where everyone was from and where they'd all worked in different hospitals around the world. Oh, wicked. And I was obviously there like, well, there's Sussex where I grew up. <laughs> there's Kent where I work now. So, uh, yeah. I'm well-travelled. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's very cool. That was like a nice little moment that we all shared where we were like, oh, that's cool, yeah. And then had to go back to work. But it was... That's um, lovely. Yeah, it's that, that's a nice, nice thing that I've had um, during this time. So, you what, um, what sort of if, if you were going to leave people on more of a like a, in that as we're talking about like those hopeful notes and nice things, mm. if you're going to leave people on like a hopeful note for what we can sort of expect. There's still challenges, people will still get ill, we've still got to be really careful and follow the advice. Um, but yeah. can we be is there something we can hold on to from a, from, from your perspective of hope? Well, the, there's the a lot is, of pressure on you, Adam. Yeah, right yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, 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 my head's about to blow up. Um, uh, <laughs> I think there is obviously hope, like, as we were saying, you know, this isn't forever, this will subside. Um, it, you know, it, things will get back. It's going to take a while for things to get back to anywhere near normal. Right. They do. I'm dreading the bit where it does get back to normal, everyone's back out on the beers, drinking themselves into A&E, and then we're there like, <laughs> I bet you were clapping at eight o'clock last week. On <laughs> now you've drunk yourself into A and E, but uh, you know it's like was, we won't be clapping you out of hospital this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, there's definitely hope. It's just we do just have to. It's a marathon, not a sprint, and it's going to be a bit different for a while. And there's going to be a lot of economic backlash, and that's where I'm pretty smug because I'm like one of the few people with some job security at the moment. 
Um, no, it's because you're doing a very brave, important job. <laughs> I don't feel particularly brave, but I'm uh, I'm enjoying it at the moment. To be fair, some parts of it, but um, it's nice to have a bit more. I think it's just it's really also mental, as everyone keeps saying. It's just there's no way to get your head around it because no, and that's fine. Like that's okay to not have your head around it. It just. Do you think that at times? those experiences of bonding and like bringing people together, do you think that's something that like, one of the good things that will come out of this? You said with colleagues so. sort of bonding. Yeah, I hope so. Like it, it means I'm more likely to at the end of the day go and check they've actually, they're all right and that they've finished what they're meant to be doing for the day then just going, well, I've done everything for my patients, I'm obviously later. Right. Uh, I'm more, far more likely to, and they're more likely to do the same to me and just, uh, you know, feels a bit more like we're all linked together. Um, obviously that's easy to say for healthcare staff, whether it's, just, I don't know how people who are sitting at home feeling frustrated and annoyed and crap that this is what's happening. Like, I don't, it's a different situation for them. I also feel almost feel quite lucky that I get to go to work still. Oh, that's very nice perspective yeah. you have on it. I think that you, you're going through, you're in one of the more, most challenging sort of positions right now. So it's nice that you can see sort of the, some of the benefits that might come out of it and maybe that the culture becomes more supportive of each other, et cetera. But I think, yeah, I I think so. the general consensus of people sitting at home is that, I don't know, did you get a chance to see Banksy's um, work he put out today? Maybe yesterday. It's a picture mm-hmm. of a boy playing with, so he had like Superman and Batman or something like in a bin, yeah. like broken yeah. it. And he was playing with like a, an, an NHS doll was the superhero. Yeah. And oh, I think right. that is sentiment for what, the the clapping is obviously once it all wraps up people are going to stop they'll go out and get drunk they won't think about it i really hope and i'm positive and optimistic that people are going to have an elevated like freaking respect for the nhs and everyone in it the thing is people come from all over the world to work in it yeah and that i think that's a hugely important thing i think from my perspective is not to get political because that's um, i hate being political at the best times but it's, I just hope that the powers that be have a slightly better light. This, this, this sheds a light on the NHS and how hard people do work. And, you know, it's not that long ago nurses have had their bursaries taken away and then they're shocked that there's not enough nurses coming through. And I just hope that something like this will pro- like provoke some kind of investment that helps okay, cool. things like that get better because it is chronically underfunded and it's, it's obviously it's a huge thing and it's expensive to run, but it's something that look, the general public generally are behind and love and want to uh, are proud of. And hopefully, this will spark some kind of bigger movement towards getting it back to how good it used to be, from what I've heard from other doctors. But I don't is, know, obviously, it worked a little bit. Is there a way that people listening or watching, and probably mostly listening after this, but um, can support the nhs in a better way so whether it's now like so you're seeing lots of people um <laughs> fundraising for nhs charities and uh, yeah. and and maybe like making things and taking it in but then it's hard to say like i think fundraising for the charities that you know their normal fundraising events are getting cancelled at the moment so and then they literally rely on those funds to, to, to work like my old rugby team, for example, is doing um, a fundraiser where we're running as many miles as possible, basically, um, to raise money for a homeless charity in Leeds um, because anything that would have brought the money in before is not happening. And that's the same for most charities. So that's always good. I think that's a, a big thing because at the end of the day, the, the NHS is a government, you know, it's, it's provided by the taxpayer and the government and that they should be sourcing the funding for that so it can be a bit of a dangerous concept to think that we need to fund the nhs out of our own like cash now but yeah i don't know too much about the economics of it all and but but for more of a bit but more of your feet on the ground is there like if you could be like look guys this would be really helpful maybe there's nothing but maybe maybe, oh, <laughs> maybe yeah. please don't end up in a and e on a friday yeah. night <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's there is that be sensible afterwards you know there's is the reason there's so many fewer people coming to a at the moment because there's less emergencies happening or just because people have a lower or a much higher threshold for what they think is an accident or emergency now. Um, I guess that's a food for thought that a and admissions are the lowest they've been, I think, on record in the last month or so. 
Um, obviously, everyone is different for everyone. Um, we get a lot of free food at work. That's quite nice. Um, getting a free drink every afternoon and I don't know who's providing the lunch, but like a sandwich bag, which is... Yeah, man. Um, every now and again, we get like local businesses bringing in like um, hot dinners and things and... Um, what else was it? Uh, oh, we got a load of Easter eggs, load of free Easter eggs from Nestle. Um, yes. Weekend. So yeah, I mean that's nice. It, it's not it's not necessary, but it's a little boost to uh, to keep you motivated. That but yeah, I think it's just it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. So you need to just keep keep plodding through steadily. Uh, I, I can't think of anything like massive to to do. So I'll just just keep like sticking to, I don't know keep slowing the spread of it down I guess <laughs> doing the right things like Adam that is like that is very that is testament to you you're not putting it on anyone else you're like let, let me do my job I just sort of like crack on with life that's cool <laughs> but what you did say which I think is really important um, and everyone watching this right now is in the pick it up put it down group is you're right like these charities the fundraising events are stopped <laughs> like we need to one one thing you suggest that people do, which is great, is maybe turn your eye to the charities that do totally rely on government yeah. funding. And whatever that charity is, just pay pay a sort of mind to that. Sitting here feeling massively grateful for not only everyone listening, because that is the purpose of this, but for Adam's time, that was such a useful thing for us all to be able to listen to, to cut all of the streams where we're getting our information from about the front line and to speak to someone who is literally on it and who's around people on it the whole time and who is helping people in the front line. There were a lot of things to take away there. Um, for sure, some words of seriousness. Um, not only for how we might want to be uh, mindful of our behavior now, but also afterwards, if we value the NHS now, maybe when things settle a bit, it could make us consider that 15th beer on a Friday night before we get subject to A&E. And, uh, and then on another serious note, that they are the NHS is taking it incredibly seriously. Uh, the people, Adam is one of hundreds of thousands of amazing individuals who give their time um, and have given their education and service and now careers to helping us all out. So um, it was amazing to hear a little bit about your background, Adam, uh, to have you on here. You're a long-term friend of mine. That was great to have that chat and we, we kept it clean. And for anyone listening, again, thank you so much. Uh, if you liked it, I'd be indebted to you if you could leave a review. Otherwise, please do look after yourselves and I look forward to meeting you all on the next podcast. Pow.